This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Dominic Fifield of The Athletic, and his colleague, Richard Amofa. There was no hiding place for Oli Gunnar Solskjaer at Old Trafford. He looked like a little boy lost as Liverpool humiliated his Manchester United team. Well, I say team, it was a rabble. It's a manager's job to unify talented players, to provide structure and strategy. In that, Solskjaer and his coaches have failed, miserably and consistently. We discussed the limits of acceptable criticism on Friday's podcast, and I understand United fans are reluctant to condemn a club legend. But surely it's time to make a change. Do you agree, Dom? Yes, it is time. I, I, I have some sympathy with the supporters who don't want to criticise someone that they hold dear to their hearts, and he does mean and will always mean a lot to Manchester United, but... But if you don't change now, then you're never going to change. That was so shambolic, and it was in their showpiece occasion in the you know the game against bitter rivals at Old Trafford, um, a match that they they couldn't really afford to lose, let alone be humiliated in. And from start to finish, really from the moment Fernandez missed that guilt-edged chance at nil-nil, they were gone. They were, as you say, that, that there was no pattern. There was no organization he had players some pressing some not pressing and that that's a coaching issue that does boil down to the quality of the coaching that they're receiving at Carrington on a daily basis weekly basis and it was all too chaotic to suggest that it was possible to recover from any of it United under Solskjaer will have great runs and then have awful runs and great runs awful runs and it just as sure as night follows day I mean it's that's how it works. But there's no future in this, as it stands. It's They're getting further away from the top four. They're not closing in on it. His assertion post-match that they've come too far to give up now is, and they're too close now, it's just nonsense. They're not close. They feel further away now than they've done from that top three for a long, long time. And I, I really think an occasion that was where the gulf was exposed to that extent, I'm not sure there should be any recovery from it for that management team. I must admit that you know, when I looked at the table this morning, I was amazed that actually United were seventh. I didn't realise it had got that bad. I suppose one of the worst emotions in elite sport, Richard, is pity. And we talked about humiliation, but I felt pity for... Solskjaer. I felt really sorry for him yesterday. You know, I had that thousand-yard stare. And he was basically a passenger in that whole process. What about you? you let's look at this, brought it down to like you know, the human being at the centre of this. How difficult is it to watch someone go through that? I mean, look, we know Solskjaer is a club legend, and you know, you don't want to see people who you hold in such high esteem going out really sad like that. But at the end of the day, you know, the buck does stop with him. And, you know, as Dom said, you know, some of the issues yesterday 
were issues that I've been talking about, many people have been talking about for, for over a year now in terms of the coaching, the tactical discipline and, and you know, with the side dealing with individual brilliance time and time again to bail them out. So while Solskjaer's done a great job in terms of taking United as far as he has done, in terms of bringing back some kind of identity and, and some good times as well, I mean, you know, let's not lie, there have been some good performances, but... This kind of result has been coming for a while. Last week was, was dreadful, but as I say, these performances aren't new. So while the youngster in me, the boy in me, feels sorry for Oli, you know, the club legend, you know, if you look at it in, in a cold light of day, it's not been good enough for a while. As I say, he's taking that to so far. We have seen improvements under him. I'm sure the fans will agree with that. But um, if we're looking at elite level, as you mentioned, Mike, we have to be ruthless. You know, you look at Chelsea, they made the kind of sentimental appointment as well of Lampard, and when it wasn't working, he was out the door, and they brought in a, a ruthless tactician in Tuchel who's taken Chelsea on onto another level, and they look fantastic this season. And you're thinking, you know, if Manchester United really want to keep in touch with that top three now, who are almost breaking away from everyone else, there does need to be a change, and not just with Solskjaer, but I feel with the whole coaching staff as well, because, you know, say, as we mentioned on, on the TV yesterday, there's too many individuals there learning on the job, and for a club like Manchester United, it's not enough to be at that top table. Yeah, um, you know, a manager tends to be a symptom of a, of a club's deeper problems in many ways. If you look at United, Dom, from the top downwards, you know, the ownership voracious businessmen they would be quite happy one suspects if champions league football is and, and the attendant riches are guaranteed on an annual basis you've got some flux at senior management level edward would leaving in that environment who makes the big decision and i suppose frankly do the owners care enough about manchester united as a football club rather than a football brand or a sports brand to actually make that decision? Well, don't they go hand in hand? I mean, if United don't qualify for, for the Champions League, then it damages said brand. Mm. And it may be that, that is the extent of their interest and it is financially motivated and about United standing in the grander scheme of things. But as it stands this morning, they're three points of West Ham in the table. And they're seventh, they're in a Europa Conference League spot. That is where it is. I know it's ridiculously early days and they're only, you know, three points is bridgeable. That's not a problem. But recovering psychologically from Sunday is going to take some time. Their fixtures coming up are not easy. I mean, Tottenham will be wounded as well when they meet them on Saturday. And then they've got Manchester City coming next to Old Trafford. So good luck with that one. I mean, it's not an easy situation. It's a really good point in terms of the state of flux at the club because who does make the decision? I mean, Ed Woodward doesn't want to go out on a sacking. He'll want to get to the end of his time at United and with the manager in charge, he's the longest-serving coach since Sir Alex Ferguson at the club and that, that will be his target. The last thing he wants to do is go out sacking the man he appointed. But does that leave them in a state of flux until the end of the year? I mean, it's a bit loose anyway when Woodward is actually going to leave that position. Everything about it seems a bit too fluid and, and uncertain off the pitch. And then and that doesn't bear any relation to what's going on on the pitch. But we've seen evidence yesterday that literally everything is uncertain on the pitch because they don't know what they're doing, unfortunately. Yeah. If they do make that decision, Rich, who would you go for? Conte's obviously available. I can see the merit in some form of combination of Mark Overmars and Eric Ten Hag, if you're going to build long-term on the sort of Ajax model. Who do they go for? Yeah, I think the name that you used to kick off there with Antonio Conte, I think he would be someone whom United should be looking at. Rumours that he is keen on, on the role. I mean, and the, the reason for that is, in terms of the coaching side, I mean, this is a side that's got immense talent but they're not being coached to an acceptable standard. And we know that Conte will come in, as we've seen with Chelsea, what he did with Chelsea, he came in, he made them a well-drilled unit, ultimately led them to the league title. And what we saw yesterday, as I said, is you know it's been a, a long-running a long running issue, but everyone's talked especially about that first goal. I mean, it's been entrenched in my mind ever since it went in, only because the players just running around, just not pressing, people weren't pressing, 
the team that I play for, Step 7, you know, we do that, but we don't train. So you'd expect, <laughs> you know, Manchester United, who, you know, who, who are at that top level to, to, to be a more cohesive unit. Um, and then the reason why I say Conte as well in terms of getting the side world drilled is because I remember when, when Pep took over at Man City and uh, he implemented a 4-3-3 system and he had the likes of Silva and De Bruyne in, that, um, in the attacking number 10 positions. And everyone was saying, oh, you know, they're too tippy-tappy, they can't press. In a similar way to people saying yesterday that United's players aren't set up for pressing. But although we saw with their amazing brilliance on the ball, KDB and Silva, first and foremost, they ran, they pressed high, they set the tone for that press from Manchester City. So there's no excuse for players not being able to do that. It's just about getting a coach... Able, you know, who's able to equip the players with the tactics and and then also the, the fitness and everything else in order to press high throughout the game because that, that's what football is these days. You have to be able to run, you have to be able to press as a unit or if you're not going to do that, sit back as a cohesive unit and be difficult to beat. United were neither and, you know, as we've seen, conceded far too many goals and, and yesterday was just, uh, as I, I think, the beginning. You know, you, you mentioned Spurs there, Dom, and, you know, Manchester City coming to Old Trafford, you know, in, in a couple of weeks' time. I mean, if Liverpool can score five without really trying in the second half, you, you kind of worry in terms of how many goals Man City will, will score as well. So, many issues there, but I think Conte would be the best man for the job. It's not easy for a new manager to come at this stage of the season and, and implement a change in style and, and formation and tactics. And, and indeed, he doesn't have a lot of time. He wouldn't have a lot of time at Carrington, really, to implement what he'd want to change, given that the, the rush of midweek fixtures as well that, that United are subjected to. Although, actually, this week they're out of the League Cup, so they, they get a bit of a breather now. But I would say with Conte, as Rich says, if you go back to his first few months at Chelsea... Uh, he played a a system that initially that that didn't really work, and then there was that that moment at the Emirates where they were three 0 down at half time, and he switched to a back three at half time, and his coaching team were able to get that group of players comfortable in a new system almost instantly. They didn't concede in the second half at the Emirates. They went on a massive long unbeaten run on the back of that and won the league. So he's clearly a coach with his allies and his compatriots who he brings in with his team of coaches that can impress new ideas on a squad if indeed there is the quality in that squad. And I don't think anyone's looking at the Manchester United squad and saying there isn't talent there. There's a huge amount of talent, but there's something fundamentally wrong if they're being outrun by everybody. I mean, virtually everybody in the division is outrunning them at the moment, which is, I don't know whether that's a, a confidence thing or a psychological thing or whether they just lost faith with the way th- everything's going at that club but there's it's rotten to the core on that on that level yeah by contrast liverpool you know they were absolutely streets ahead of of united in every aspect of the game weren't they again when we look at managers managers are judged on big decisions and and Jurgen Klopp made some big decisions yesterday which came off didn't they rich yeah, I mean, when when initially saw that sort of lineup, saw you know there was no Matip, there was no Mane, a lot of Liverpool fans were, were probably thinking, oh, you know, what what's Klopp done here? But time and time again, he has been justified. And I think the thing with Liverpool now, see, Klopp's been now a while. He's implemented his own style and his own style of play is that whenever a player comes out and a player you know and, and gets replaced, the system doesn't change, the style of play doesn't change. They're still a cohesive unit. And you don't really see kind of any changes in, in how they build up and, and, and how they play. So credit to Klopp for doing that. And as you say, having that system there ruefully punished a, a team which had no system. And as I say, could have easily gone on to get five, six, seven. Kate was probably a, a surprise starter as well. But again, he came and he slotted in well and he was absolutely fine. And the game just highlighted just one team who've ruthlessly coached and and well drilled against a side who hasn't been and and the issues were, were there to see but you know, credit to Liverpool you know they were, they were fantastic they were ruthless um and they, they played some decent football I mean to be fair I think they even played better last week against Watford when they scored five I don't think they played particularly that well I would say that it was a 1-5-0 but I've seen Liverpool play much better I think we all have yet you know they were able to just get the job done a kind of well-oiled machine and they're looking ominous this year I must say it's amazing that they achieved that with Fabinho absent through an injury. I mean, he's so key to and critical to what, everything they do. And then also 
recovered from losing James Milner to a hamstring problem in the in the first half. I mean, obviously, when Cater goes off later on, it's the game's done and it's settled. But as Rich says, that they all know their roles, they all know their jobs, so they just slot in, and that's the sign of a good coaching setup, quite frankly, and some very very good players. And it's a sign of a team, isn't it, yeah. Dom? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was yeah. cohesive is the word. Yeah, they're a unit. They know their strengths, they know their weaknesses, and they work to eradicate them. And they were just different level. And you know what? A shout out here to BT coverage in the week when Paul Scholes was on. He got a lot of grief, not least a bit from from his co-panelists in, in the midweek game against Atlanta, where, where he was painfully realistic about where United were. He wasn't taken in by that, you know, riotous second half recovery against Atalanta. Uh, and was saying if they play like that against Liverpool, they'll be three or four nil down at half time. And I think everybody at the time thought, well, yeah, but there's no way that United would go into this game and play exactly the same formation and same system against against Liverpool. And yet, when that team sheet dropped, it's exactly the same personnel and exactly the same issues. And sure enough, Paul Scholes was nailed on right four nil at half time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we know we know that Liverpool are operating under a, a relatively more stringent budget, Rich. Klopp obviously wants Mo Salah to be signed on a long-term contract, even though we're talking about £400,000 a week. Will he get his own way? Will they sign Salah? Because you look at it, another hat-trick yesterday. He's got to be the best in the world at the moment. It's a no-brainer, Mike, to to be honest. I I, I really just can't see what the lay is in that. I mean, you know, over the summer, they gave a lot of uh, new contracts to a lot of the the kind of existing squad who've, who who taking them so far and rightly so but you know Salah is the icing on, on top of the cake and, and he is just in phenomenal form as you rightly say best in the world his stats are incredible was it 10 goals 5 assists already this season um, and he broke all kinds of records at Old Trafford yesterday and I don't know I, I think as an owner you're watching it you're thinking why if if Liverpool want to sustain themselves as they can at the top table you want all the all, all the best players there so why would you delay that if it is 400000 a week, I'll say, so what? He's performing at a level which gives him the right to earn that kind of money. The way Salah is, he's in amazing physical condition. Although he's like 28, 29, he, he's going to be at the top of his game for a few years to come. And he's also intelligent enough that when he does lose that blistering pace, which he's got, you know, he's, he's got the technical ability and he's clever enough to fill it in other pockets and other other roles moving forward as well and still be as effective. So, you know, that's a long-term investment, four, five, six years. You're still going to get good numbers and good output from Mohamed Salah. So it just seems like a no-brainer as to, you know, why that deal hasn't been done, I'm afraid. Don, where, where do you see Manchester City in this whole equation? Basically, Brighton played into their hands at the weekend by just offering them so much space. And with their incision and speed on the break, City did what City do. Are they in the best form of the, let's face it, the three contenders? I think Liverpool might have a, might argue that they're, that they're not doing too badly. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's City's presence on the shoulder of those two must be quite disconcerting for Chelsea and Liverpool. I mean, they're just hovering there and, and they're purring quietly with some of the football they're playing. It's stunning stuff. Obviously, they'll come horrifically unstuck when they play the Mighty Palace on Saturday, but um, <laughs> he says, hiding behind the sofa. A lot of the theories around City and whether they'd sustain it this season were based on the the reality they didn't have a natural number nine who was going to come in, the, the, you know, their pursuit of Harry Kane, the departure of Sergio Aguero. Well, the reality is they showed last season when they scored umpteen number of goals that they don't actually need that and their system works perfectly well as it is. They've had Jack Grealish, they've had Phil Foden playing through the middle with equally effective either way. That group of of attacking midfielders or number 10s or whatever you want to call them really, wide players, are phenomenal and they will conjure goals in any situation against any opponent. You know, they've been to Anfield and probably ended up a bit disappointed to only draw 2-2. They've been to Chelsea and they've wiped the floor with them, to be honest, in the most convincing 1-0 victory that you could possibly imagine. So to be two points off the top, one points off Liverpool at present, they're just mustering themselves. They're there for the duration. And I think these three teams are head and shoulders above the rest. No one's going to deny that. But I would be worried about City if I was a Liverpool fan or a Chelsea fan because I think 
City just have this way of generating momentum and doing it on the quiet. And then the next thing you know, you look up and they're six, seven, eight points clear at the top and, and it's gone. So no slip-ups allowed, really. And uh, they will be a force all season. That gap between the top three and the rest, Rich, is it you expect it to keep widening? Because let's look at Chelsea as an example. They're able to bring in Callum Hudson-Odoi and still have Ziyech in reserve after a couple of untimely injuries with Lukaku and Werner. That's a forbidding um, strength in depth, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, 100%. And I completely agree that that top three, just in terms of quality, depth, it's a massive gap, which is widening now. And also, you know, three top quality coaches as well. So having, you know, well-drilled sides with immense quality, it's a no-brainer. It's such a wide gap now. But, you know, you mentioned Chelsea, as you say, Hudson-Odoi. In a parallel universe, he'd be 80 to £100 million player at Bayern Munich. You know, this is someone who can walk into pretty much... Every Premier League side, apart from the top three, maybe Manchester United as well. So to have that in, in reserve, and you say Ziyech, you've got Havertz, you've got Lukaku, and also a, a, a good nucleus of academy players you know, being produced at Cobham, which has been such a an issue or, or talking point for a number of years now. So to see so many of them flourishing in the first team, in and among that talent that you've mentioned, they're looking re- really, really strong. And as I say, uh, along with Liverpool, Manchester City... I can't really see anybody getting close to them this season. Yeah, you know, we looked at a, a few um, players produced by that academy not quite making the final step. What about Ruben Loftus-Cheek, Dom? You know, you've seen him in several guises, several loan spells. Do you expect him to, you know, make a concerted attempt to actually you know, break into that team? He's doing it now. He's doing it now. He's done it since the uh, he started the League Cup tie against Aston Villa in the end of towards the end of September, and he played as a six in front of the back four and was absolutely outstanding, admittedly against a Villa team that wasn't their strongest lineup either. But I didn't think he was able to play that role. That was a new one for me. I, I thought he was going to be a, an attack-minded player. You know, at Palace, he played wide left. At Fulham, he was a, he was a number 10. At Chelsea, first time around, he was he was one of the 10s as well. But he he's got that ability. He has this uncanny knack of drawing players into him thinking that they can get the ball off him and then he just glides away from them with this sort of deceptive pace that he's got and it is a glide it's beautiful to watch there was also the, a wonderful game and I covered the Brentford match recently and he was up against another man mountain in Onyeka at one point and they there was an inadvertent clash they they sort of turned into each other and Onyeka was flawed, absolutely flawed. And he's he's massive, Onyeka. He's huge. He's a he's a proper man mountain. And, and he, he was completely not for six by this. And Ruben Loftus Cheek just he barely flinched. He just you know he was he hardly noticed it. And and, and he's got everything that, that that sort of showcases his his physical presence. The fact that he can sit as a six and play this sort of quarterback role demonstrates he's he's got the quality and the precision and the invention and the creativity as well that you need in a game the only thing that's been lacking with him has been fitness and it was the Achilles that well the niggling injuries before back problems and then the Achilles that knocked him out for 18 months or something daft and put his career on hold but actually weirdly that loan spell at Fulham although he didn't tear up any trees and the team got relegated for him to get through that season without being injured was psychologically hugely important for him He's come back to Chelsea this year and he's he's he surprised Tuchel. He was unaware that they had this Rolls-Royce on their books, basically. He saw him in pre-season and said, wow, you know, I had no idea. And and this player will be integrated. He will be a member of that Chelsea midfield. And he offers them something different to a Jorginho, to a Kovacic, to a Conte. He's the fourth option. He's He makes you wonder why they bothered with Saul. Really, he's not going to get that much game time. As long as Ruben stays fit, I think he'll be very much in and around the Chelsea first team and he'll be back in the England setup before too long as well. The game against Norwich on Saturday, Rich, was pretty much a you know predictable exercise in futility, wasn't it? Goal difference of minus 21, two draws in nine games so far, humiliated Chelsea. Uh, I think it's no wins now in 19 Premier League games during which they've only scored three times. 
Are we looking here at the new Derby? Who, you know, lest we forget, were relegated with eleven points in two thousand and eight. You know what might probably on the cards to be even worse, because at least with that Derby side, although okay they were poor, but they did show you know signs of application. They did show signs of of belief, desire, and all all those prerequisites you'd expect from any Premier League side. But we've just not seen that with Norwich. You know. Of course, when teams come up, there there is going to be a, a, a kind of golfing class and quality as they adapt. But as you say, Norwich have been here before, so there's no excuse for them to not know the level required. And you know, they 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 backed Farker this summer, gave him a new deal, four years. You know, and and they they you know they they did uh, you know spend the money that they recouped from selling Emmy Brandia, but it's, it's just not worked. And you know, you mentioned the stats there. I can't see where they're going to get a win from, to be honest, because they've not got any real quality going forward, sadly. But defensively, they're just all over the place, far too open, far too naive. It doesn't bode well for, for the rest of the season. I say nine games in, they look well off the pace, so devoid of quality in all areas of the pitch. I mean, Tim Krull, poor guy, you know, he pulls off save after save every game and, and still concedes shed loads. There's only so much he can do. If if they do beat Derby's uh, total of two thousand eight, we'll be very surprised because at the moment I'm not seeing anything from them. And you, you do have to look at Farker because as you say he's been well backed, a new deal, and he did well again and got them promoted. But they know what the Premier League is about from being there two years ago, from being a yo-yo club as they are. And you you just have to you know if it's not working now. You have to set up differently. But they seem to just like to be open. Like to just to think, just playing pretty football is going to be enough, and at this level, it's just not. Um, and I really do fear for them in terms of well, they probably are going to go down, but by what margin and what long term impact that will have on the club as well is is a big worry for me. There were some strange decisions being made. Billy Gilmore, for instance, um, Dom. You know his exclusion puzzles me. The club might be run brilliantly in a in a holistic sense. But the team, there's no quality, there's no resilience, there's no character on the evidence of Stamford Bridge. At what point do you think Farker has to accept responsibility for some of this? I think he will accept responsibility now, to be honest. It's, I, I'm sort of loath to, to pile in on Norwich after a game at Stamford Bridge, even against a team without Lukaku and, and Werner. It's, there was a bit more about them in their draw against Brighton the previous week. I mean, that's not a bad result when you look at Brighton where they are on the table and they should have, they could have and should have maybe won that match. You know, other teams have had deplorable starts to the season and in, in the past and and found a way to muster themselves and, and yeah, and, and recover. I mean, go back to 2017-18, Palace had seven defeats and no goals to their name after seven fixtures. It can be done, but to do it, you need defensive structure and organisation. That is that is what has to come first. And I completely agree with Rich. We haven't seen any evidence, really, that Norwich can do that at this level. They're fine in the Championship. They're one of these clubs that is the 21st best team in the country, probably. I mean, they they are... They know that level and they know how to succeed at that level. But for Daniel Fark, the Premier League remains a bit of a mystery, clearly. The Gilmore thing, I thought Thomas Tuchel was quite interesting on Billy Gilmore, actually, on Friday. When he, he, rather than saying and complaining that Norwich aren't playing one of their low knees, which I think previous Chelsea managers and certainly the Chelsea hierarchy have whinged about in the past and been disappointed when players haven't, haven't featured... Thomas Tuchel basically thrust the onus back on Gilmore, basically saying to him, look, if you have aspired to have a future at Chelsea Football Club and being in our first team here and playing a, a major part because you're a talented footballer, then go out and prove that you're the best player at Norwich City. Go out and show in training that you should be in that team and you should be a part of it all. And clearly, he hasn't convinced Daniel Fart that he should be involved on a weekly basis at Norwich to date. It's only been, I think, three matches he sat out, but that is a worrying trend. And it's, it sort of goes back to some of the noises that Tuchel made about Ross Barkley and to a certain extent Loftus-Cheek, actually, in the summer when Chelsea would have been open, certainly for Barkley to move on. You know, he, he'd he gone to Aston Villa last year and he, he wasn't the best player on the pitch at Aston Villa. He should be. If he wants to be a Chelsea player, he needs to be the best player at Aston Villa. That's, that is Tuchel's attitude. And it's quite... A, 
it's quite a good attitude, I think, to be honest, because it should get the best out of the players. And I suspect over time that Billy Gilmore will show his his, his quality and his pedigree at Norwich and get back into that team. And this year will be a massive education for him because he won't have been used to this. This is pretty much um, what what Ampadu endured at uh, Sheffield United last season so far, and it you know they have to be better for this experience if they if they want to progress at a club like Chelsea. Yeah, Norwich saw Ben Gibson sent off in the way that Paul Pogba was sent off. A bit of petulance, perhaps, certainly a lack of control. That's been a bee in your bonnet, hasn't it, Richard? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's just something I just can't stand. I mean, when when the team is suffering like that, Granit Xhaka, Arsenal at Man City as well, John Joe Shelby last week against Spurs, you know, when, when the team is suffering like that, you, you have to maintain your discipline. You have to keep 11 players on the pitch because when we're all frustrated, we all want to lash out. We all don't want to be there. We all want the pitch to open up and swallow us and, and just hide. But you, know, you have to stay on there and, and, and be with your teammates and lashing out like that when you know what the consequences are. It's just, it's not it's not fair in the teammates, it's not, it's not fair in the fans. And I don't like going down that route about, you know, not being fair in the fans or whatever, because I understand the frustrations, but you have to stay in the pitch and, and suffer with your teammates. You know, the, the old mantra, you know, win together, lose together. But if you're, you're getting yourself sent off, uh, you know, in acts of petulance and frustration, I can't think of anything more frustrating, to be honest. Should, should uh, Ronaldo have been sent off, Rich? I think so. I just looked at it, I was like, what are you doing? You know, why are you doing that? And Bruno Fernandes was even lucky as well um, to be in the pitch. And it's all, again, I know we already touched on United, but it's all these kind of lack of discipline which you don't associate with the club. And yeah, it's, it's these kind of issues which, you know, is, is it a wider issue at Manchester United? You know, as you say, three, three players who've been on the cusp who, you know, clearly frustrated but as you say you have to keep your discipline in, in, in these scenarios yeah you just have to Dom think I'm right in saying that you're at Selhurst Park on Saturday yeah I was yeah uh, views on Newcastle please first uh, you know looking from the outside you know if you think Steve Bruce was cautious wait until you see Graham Jones's blueprint yeah, but I think that was needed, and I think he telegraphed it, to be honest. I don't think any Newcastle supporters would have been surprised by that approach. They have been too open. They've been trying to be slightly more... They had been trying to be slightly more attack-minded under Bruce this season, and and, and I think that, that that was actually manifesting itself in the in the defensive stats, which were all over the place. I mean, I don't think anyone had conceded as many goals as them prior to Saturday, but I was quite impressed with the defensive discipline they showed it reminded me actually of a Roy Hodgson team's display and performance um against a you know a team further up the Premier League table they played five at the back but actually Longstaff made it six at the back quite often they closed down the space well and and yeah they conceded chances and they they should have lost the game because if Benteke had had uh, hadn't been quite so profligate they would have been well beaten anyway but there was a resilience and a ruggedness there that was admirable to a certain extent. They scored a wonderful goal with one of their few attempts, um, but it, it gave Jones something to build on. I mean, I, I expect they'd have to do the same this weekend when they play Chelsea. I mean, they'll, they'll have to go out there and hit teams on the counter for the foreseeable future uh, because they're in such a, a, a difficult position in the league. And there's a complete logic to that. That's how... You could argue that's how Benitez's team played at, at Newcastle. And when they've got players like Wilson and, and Sam Maxim and Fit, uh, who can make inroads on the counter-attack, Ryan Fraser is another one who's, who's quick. Matt Ritchie, likewise. I, there is a threat there. There is a threat there. So I think they will have thought that that performance was an indication of progress. It just um, wasn't very expansive progress. Mm. You know, there is a, an overwhelming sense, Rich, isn't there, that people are just holding their breath and say, right, OK, let's just get to January and then do something about it. What credence do you give to the stories that fellow Premier League clubs won't sell players to them? <laughs> I mean, you know, from the outside, it's uh, it's a bit of fun, isn't it? But, I mean, we all know what happened at the, uh, at the, at the meeting among the chairman last week and, you know, how they're against a kind of... Uh, the commercial deals that Newcastle wants to do, so there probably are, is, is 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 legs in in that story. But uh, 
we don't often see kind of players on on a regular basis or overwhelmingly anyway move from clubs to club within the Premier League anyway. But to have a kind of like you know blanket ban, uh, I can't see happening. Only because if you're looking at it from the selling club's perspective as well, you know if they've got kind of not I won't say dead wood because Newcastle are looking to go places, but players who have good quality but you know are looking to move on you know Don mentioned like some even let's say Ross Barkley for example you know they they would probably want to recoup some kind of transfer fee for those kinds of players so in that kind of practical sense I don't think it would make full sense to do that um and, and just just not sell to them but I mean it, it, would, it would be quite funny if, if, if that was if that was the case I mean for everyone else by Newcastle but um yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens in January. But I guess first, you know, they need to get themselves a manager, first and foremost. And just so we all know and they know what direction they want to go in. You know, they've got Bruce out now. So the, the next step is key because, you know, the manager will determine, you know, what, what players they will attract and, and how they will play. What was the atmosphere like at Selhurst, um, Dom? You know, there is, you know, let's be honest here. You know, a pretty, it will be a popular relegation, won't it? if Newcastle do go down, you know, people, because football is fueled by, by envy, um, you know, people would love it if they went down. What was the atmosphere like? Going into the ground, there were large groups of Newcastle fans chanting, we're going to buy the league, which was interesting given their position in the table. It's all relative, isn't it? It's all, it's all, I don't think that, that Newcastle fans have suffered in the same way that, say, Southend United fans are suffering now or Bury fans suffered when their club was, was disappeared off the face of the, the earth. But relatively speaking, Newcastle have been starved of the hope that they needed over the last 14 years of Mike Ashley's ownership. So I can understand a sort of outpouring of, of delight amongst their, their fan base that, that things have changed and that there is now ambition and and hope again so i don't know i don't think anybody any football fan really could begrudge them that the issues around the ownership and the people who have bought the club is more nuanced and it's difficult and 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 i think the banner that was unfurled and the homesdale prior to kickoff i think it as much as newcastle fans were were clearly aggrieved by that to the extent that somebody somewhere in that stadium complained to the police, I think they might have to get used to it because I suspect a lot of clubs are going to be acting like that when Newcastle come to town now. Um, I don't know whether that same banner will get transported around, but it's certainly there's certainly talk of that on the on the internet about you know get, getting it to to regular home games, and it, I suppose it much will depend upon what happens with the uh, with the police investigation into into its unfurling but I think that that sort of sums up the, the mood there's a it's it feels a bit like a tinderbox it feels a bit as if it, it might go off at any moment um amongst home and and away support it felt there was an edge to that game I was I didn't personally see anybody wearing headdresses or or showing the, the Saudi flag but then I looked at some of the, the reports from the game and there were photographs of that there was an interesting piece in the Guardian um, where some Newcastle fans had been chanting allegedly "blood money," which I thought was astonishing. And I imagine they did it in defiance, but presumably also ignorance. And and I, I can't really believe that you would do that. But there you go. Uh, again, it's 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 a sort of the feisty nature of a football match, and people lose their senses occasionally lose their sense rather occasionally. But I suspect we'll see repeats of it in, in the games ahead, if I'm honest. It was, I think, that the sentiments expressed by the by those in the Homesdale stand with the unfurling of that banner will be shared by a lot of clubs up and down the country. Mm. Let's revert to football. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Blessed relief and all that. No, I asked the question, Dom, and you answered it brilliantly. Thank you. Palace, in that game, Rich, 78% possession. For all the praise for Vieira and his underpinning strategy, I think I'm right in saying they're five points worse off uh, now than they were at this time last season. I won't ask Dom this question, but I think I'll get a neutral's view on this from you. What do you think are the strengths and weaknesses of that current group? 
What, what, what I like about Palace is that, especially under Vieira, they do seem to be more of a of a more fluid attacking unit and, and allowing their flair players to kind of come to the fore. So obviously you've got the likes of Zaha. I like the look of Elise, uh, who, who's come in. And obviously you've got uh, Eberici Eze to come as well. And um, you know, I like Conor Gallagher, to be fair. He's, he's a great player. I kind of throw about the kind of box-to-box midfielder who can do everything. And I, lo- I love his tenacity, but also his end product as well. Um, and we've seen a rejuvenated Christian Benteke as well this season. So I think going forwards, Palace can, well, I've started to look like and can be moving forward, a, a quite exciting unit. But the weakness is, is the conversion rate. I, I think that my colleague Matt Rusnan wrote today, um, conversion rate is one of one of the worst in the league. Um, and you know, they're creating chances, but just not, they need to find a way to, to be more decisive. And and also, as we saw in the Arsenal game as well, is when you do have a lead to, to protect, you know, seeing out these games, you know, it's happened actually twice now where, you know, it could have had six points and, and been further up the table, but they've drawn twice uh, due to conceding late goals. So is that that kind of um, discipline that, you know, towards the end of the game, just to see a game out, you know, it will come with experience, of course, and, and as they grow together as, as a unit, but... You know, if they continue to keep leaking in those decisive moments of games, it, it will prove costly and it will change what could have been or what is a, a decent, promising start to a bit of a, you know, Palace could do better. And you don't just want to be that that nearly side. I'm not saying that they're going to go on and, and qualify for Europe, of course. Sorry, Dom. But there, there, there is something exciting there to build on. But they just need to just, you know, kind of maintain the discipline towards the latter end of the game. I just add that that I don't think it's fair to compare with last season. The, the start that Palace have had this year has been brutal, really. When you look at the games that they've played, I think in terms of this season, nobody has had a harder start in terms of playing teams that are higher up the table. I think Newcastle was the first opportunity where they've they've gone into a game thinking they really should win this, and they didn't. But that that was I think five point six was the average position of teams that they've been playing against um, prior to Saturday. In terms of the ruthlessness, I quite agree, but that was a problem under the previous manager as well. What they've lost, what they lack is experience and know-how, as Rich says, but that's what happens when you when the oldest squad in the Premier League becomes one of the youngest overnight. You know, if if Gary Cahill, Scott Dan, James McCarthy, um, Andros Townsend had been playing on Saturday, they w- probably would have seen out the game and not conceded a sloppy equaliser, likewise at Arsenal, likewise against Brighton. But would they have necessarily been in the position to have been in the lead in those matches? Because they are opening teams up a lot more than they were last season. I think there's a lot going right. You look at the the turnover, the nine players that left last summer, there was a general outcry of people who didn't maybe didn't read too much into the Palace or know too much about, about Palace's situation. You know, how can you possibly let nine these nine senior players leave? Well, of those nine senior players that left, only two are currently employed by Premier League clubs. And one of those is Wayne Hennessy on the bench at Burnley. So that suggests to me that they were right in, in instigating the overhaul and they will be better for it in the long run. But they're learning on the hoof in terms of the experience and how to shut out games. Watford, uh, Rich, are they proof of the Premier League's unpredictability? Certainly lower down the table. You've got Josh King scoring a hat-trick against Everton. He looks to be a bit of a streak player. And I suppose the teams like Watford, who you know have that up-and-down sort of mentality, do they have players with talent, but that there's a, something lacking in the consistent application of that talent? Yeah, 100%. And I think that's what divides the top, top players from the good players and the average players, even in the Premier League, let alone within the, the football pyramid, is how often they can be consistent with the talent that they've got. So, you know, you mentioned Josh King there. Um, you know, decent player. Um, he's done well at Premier League level over a number of years. Um, but again, it's that consistency. And is he able to sustain it over a season? I like the look of, uh, you know, Ismail Assar. But, as, you know, and, you know he, he's a good, good quality player. But again, can he, uh, you know, maintain that level over 38 games and, and you know, in cups and, and, and things like that? I think in terms of the unpredictability... I think it's what makes the league what it is, you know, in terms of obviously you've got the top three who can, who are probably miles ahead of everyone now. But, um, you know, barring that, I think anyone can beat anyone. And as you say, that's what makes the Premier League what it is. And um, 
Yeah, I was, I was quite pleased for them because I think, you know, after last week and then one at Liverpool, you, you did think, you know, where is this going? Especially with a new managerial change. But, um, okay, you know, Everton, of course, capitulated, but, you know, they have to be dead, they have to be punished. And, you know, Watford did that. I mean, Josh King's got a good record against uh, Everton, actually. Uh, in terms of the teams in the Premier League, he's scored the most against Everton coming into the game. So, and I think he had a point to prove after his uh, his loan spell there last season. So, yeah, it's good to see. I, you know, as a neutral, of course, seeing those kind of games is fantastic and is what makes the Premier League what it is. We've talked a lot in this episode of around and about modern football, what that entails, you know, the politics, the money. Dom, just to complete this, what do you think the reaction will be if, as expected, David Beckham is revealed as the face of the Qatar World Cup? Well, I'd hope that he would heed the advice that was issued to him this morning by Amnesty International, or late last night by Amnesty International, and that he would use that platform as a means of of telling the world about the plights of some of the migrant workers in Qatar and the mistreatment of said migrant workers. But I don't think he will. I can see why he wants to be associated with one of the um, the biggest events on the planet. The World Cup in, in 2022 will be an incredible jamboree, I, I imagine. And it's good for Bram Beckham to be involved in that. But I suspect, ultimately, the bigger picture will go completely forgotten in in most of the PR, depressingly. But do we really expect anything else? Mm, Yeah, I tend to doubt these figures, Rich, but there's talk of £150 million coming his way because of this. Should we expect that everyone's got their price? Well, I think, as, as, as Don mentioned, you know, you're looking at Bram Beckham, and the fact that we know Beckham's got a good relationship with the Qataris anyway, having obviously played at PSG uh, a few years ago, is a difficult one because, as you say, you'd hope that he would use the platform to address the issues that are there. But if you're being paid that amount of money, it's, it's going to be unlikely that you are going to speak out against it, sadly. And I'm not saying, not saying he's selling out or has a price or whatever, but I guess you see with Beckham, you know, he is, he is very commercially savvy in his own right. You know, you don't hear from him for a while and then, oh, I bought a football club. You don't hear from him for a while. No, now I'm the face of the World Cup. So, you know, he does like to keep his, his finger in the pulse commercially, but especially someone, someone like Beckham and his kind of upbringing and his background, you know, to then kind of take this deal... In, in a kind of romantic sense, you're thinking, yeah, why, you know? But I think you're right. You know, I think everyone does does have a price. And we see the Qataris now, you know, at PSG. You know, they've got, obviously, assembling a, a, a side there with Messi, of course, added to the mix. And now with David Beckham fronting the World Cup, I just think this, this is the way it's going to go for them. And you just hope that the issues that we talk about with Newcastle um, and their owners are, are spoken about here as well you know I know there was a talk of Norway even you know looking to boycott the World Cup which I don't think they're going to do anymore but I think when when these kind of players and individuals and teams have this platform to talk about certain issues they they should they, they should do it because the impact of doing that is is quite significant so it's almost seen as a shame when when, when people don't do that but as you say everyone's got their price well David Beckham knows better than most the power of personal reputation. He's marketed his brand brilliantly without losing his authenticity. This deal, though, if it happens, looks a rare mistake. The Qatar World Cup will be controversial for obvious and understandable reasons. Now, Beckham's got every right to make his own choices, but I, for one, hope that he doesn't cash in in this way. What about you? Please let me know. In the meantime, thanks to Dom and Richard for their insight and thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.